So what are your plans after you graduate? I remember when everybody asked me that question in high school, and I've got to say, I don't think I gave it enough thought. And you know, maybe I would have gotten into the fulfilling career I now finally have earlier if things had been different in school. One of the things we do know now is that there's a big payoff to getting students thinking about careers and their education and training early on. I'm Clara Young, and I work in the OECD's Education and Skills Directorate. And here to talk with me today is Anthony Mann, Senior Policy Analyst, also in the OECD's Education and Skills Directorate. So hello, Anthony. Hello. So I talked about this big payoff in the introduction. So what is it exactly about getting young people to think about their careers early on in school? What happens? What do the studies show? Well, we found something really interesting. Over the last year, we've been looking at national longitudinal data sets from about 10 different countries. These are surveys which follow thousands and thousands of young people from childhood all the way through into adulthood. And you can isolate particular aspects of young people's lived experience of their lives, what happens to them as teenagers, and see if that relates to better outcomes, bigger payoffs in adulthood. And what we did, we looked at a whole range of career guidance related activities about direct experience of the labour market, about guidance activities, about attitudes. And what we found was that very commonly we could associate career guidance activities and ways of thinking with better outcomes later on, lower unemployment rates, greater job satisfaction, and also sort of like higher wages. That's probably the easiest to quantify and get across in in a simple way. What we found typically was that young people who engage more in thinking about their future careers and taking part in activities to explore their future careers and those possibilities at 15 could probably expect to earn between about 5-10% more 10 years later. Okay, so higher wages, more satisfaction with their jobs, greater chance of employment. So only upsides to getting involved in career activities when when you're in school. That's right. It's a great win-win for young people. But what we find is that many young people don't participate at all in career-related activities. Uh, so by the age of 15, we know from the OECD's PISA study that fewer than half of young people by the age of 15 have visited a workplace, have attended a job fair or done an internship. In some countries, it's very small numbers of young people who participate in these sorts of activities. And they're so important because, you know, societies increasingly require young people to navigate their own way, you know, through their education and training to make, you know, ever more choices about what they're going to study, how hard they're going to study. And young people need a compass to be able to make good decisions by doing that. And what we find is that when they directly experience, you know, the world of work, when they work with their schools to explore the labour market, when we see them thinking about their futures and having more informed understanding about how future careers might relate to their education decisions, you know, they do better. And that's something which is, I think, makes easy for us to visualize of young people going into these processes with their eyes open. But we know that many young people really are really struggling and they, you know, better access to information and support from their schools. And especially now, I think, with all the labor disruption from the pandemic, I think it's particularly crucial. Well, absolutely, because the thing is that at the same time, young people are staying in education longer than ever and having to make more decisions than ever before about what and where they study, how hard they study. The labour market itself is getting ever more turbulent, ever more unpredictable, ever more dynamic. And um, we see this big, long trend in terms of digitalization, uh, which is really changing the way that lots of lots of tasks are done within workplaces and so the way that jobs are organised. But COVID has been huge. 
you know, a huge disruption um, to the labour market. And so young people having to make their decisions now, you know, really need access to a really deep level of information in order to be able to make decisions which are right for them. So what activities are we talking about exactly? I mean, we're talking about talks at job fairs. What's the most effective strategy for getting students to think about careers? Well, what, we found, what we're able to do is we're able to uh, categorize the different indicators which we've identified of better employment outcomes later on in three areas. And the first one is that young people really do need to have first-hand direct experience of the labor market, you know, actually know what it's like, you know, to do a job in a workplace. Now, that could come through part-time working, that could come from volunteering, it might be through an internship scheme, but that experience is really important. You know, it's very hard for any schools to replicate, you know, that very first-hand experience you might get of being in a workplace. And it should happen on a number of occasions because, you know, young people have many different ideas which they're playing around with. It's not really enough for them just to have a very short just one-off insight into what the labour market is actually like. And it's really important that these experiences are supplemented by activities where schools help them to explore. And we can identify some very specific things, which we see in a number of countries. We see at least three different countries where we, we identify and confirm these, these indicators. For example, young people who um, hear from people in work through career talks or attend job fairs can be expected to do better later on, taking part in workplace visits or job shadowing. Interestingly, that when young people take part in activities designed to help them develop recruitment skills, things like interview workshops, applications, CV workshops and so on, you know, they do better. And we think what's happening there is that young people are really reflecting on their educational choices and how they might relate to an imagined future. And we see the same thing in the simplest career conversation. If a young person's talking to their families, to their teachers, to their friends about, you know, their futures, you know, we see them doing better. And, you know, this links to a whole a number of different just attitudinal aspects of teenage lives. You know, young people who have a clearer sense about their career ambitions, you know, by the ages of 14, 15, 16, you know, who understand the qualifications needed to typically enter, you know, the professions they're interested in. You know, high ambition is good. Being able to, you know, relate what you're doing in the classroom to an imagined future in, in the workplace. All these things are important. And so it's not just one sort of like magic bullet, but it's these three simple things that need to be exploring, experiencing, thinking about their potential futures in work. So when's the best time for schools to begin working with students? Um, you're thinking about the career. Is it 14, 16 or even earlier? We would certainly argue that uh, 14, 15, 16 is too late. You know, young people... What we see through this study is that the attitudes that young people develop about their, their futures are really important. And that takes a lot of time for exploration, for reflection, for validation, for confirmation. And we need to give young people plenty of time to do that. Now, what we would argue, and many other, many people would agree with this, is that effective guidance really begins in primary school. And, you know, not that, at that young age, we expect young people to be developing, you know, work-ready skills. But, you know, schools can help young people to see the relationship between what they do in the classroom and this world around them, this world of work, which is around them. Being able to see connections, be able to broaden their aspirations. Because we know that, you know, that many of the aspirations of many young people are very narrow in their career aspirations. And they're also very heavily influenced by gender, by social background. There's a lot of stereotyping goes on about what's right or wrong for people like us, people like me to do. And so in beginning young and helping young people to develop this critical way of thinking, you give, you give them a sense of some confidence that they can have some, some degree of agency over their sort of transitions through education into work. It's really important. It's really important for that to start young. 
I know that's a very good point because uh, this summer I was talking to you know the daughters of uh, friends of mine and I asked them I said what are you planning to do when you get older and both of them I, now I don't really know exactly what their age is both of them wanted to be lawyers I mean that's a bit of a problem isn't it that most young people want to do sort of the same occupations well uh, in the PISA study which every three years we ask hundreds of thousands of young people around the world. What kind of job do you expect to have when you're about 30 years old? And so we're looking for expectation here, not, not, not aspiration. And what we find is that across the OECD countries, about half of students, half of boys, half of girls, say that they expect to work in just one of 10 jobs. And these tend to be you know, pretty uh, long-standing jobs. You know, it's not the new economy. It's doctors, it's lawyers, it's teachers, often for boys, it's sports people. And we see very high concentrations. And in some countries particularly lower-income countries, rapidly developing countries, we sometimes we see 60, 70, or even 80% of students, they're going to work, expecting to work in just one of 10 jobs by this age. So we find that young people have very high expectations in general, and we've been able to measure this over time. 20 years ago, in the year 2000, only about half of young people said that they expected to be a professional or to work in a managerial role by the age of 30. Now it's 62%. And we see that rising in most countries. And, and high aspirations are good things, but high aspirations need to be based upon an informed understanding about how the labor market works, what's demanded of jobs. And so we see in some countries, you know, huge proportions of young people interested in really very narrow, narrow jobs. And this matters because this is age 15. So in, in most countries, this is kind of the border between lower secondary and upper secondary education. And young people will be making decisions based upon these, these expectations. And where, you know, as in Saudi Arabia, 38% of girls say they'll become a doctor. We kind of know that it's just unrealistic for all of them, by you know, even the great, great majority of them, to progress in such a way. So young people need to have a more informed understanding about how the labour market works and how their aspirations can relate to their education decisions. Because the consequence is that we have a glut of too many people who are qualified to do certain kinds of jobs and then not enough people with the proper skills to do the jobs that the labor market needs, like more vocational careers, for example. Yeah, that's right. We see young people getting caught out. You know, I know people in my extended family who've done just that. You know, they've gone through education. They've had an aspiration which hasn't worked out or perhaps they've had no aspiration. And a quarter of young people now across the OECD countries just don't know what sort of job they will be doing at age 30. We can see them getting caught out. And it might well be that they get through a whole other program or maybe even tertiary education, a higher education, and then find it's not work for them to do that. Because in many countries now, we see tertiary education being marketized. And so, you know, and that undermines the relationship between the demand from the labor market on one side and, you know, young people's, you know, the supply of young people sort of coming through. So there are some real risks. I think that's what we see when we look at these indicators. We see young people getting caught out and getting off to a poor start in the labour market. And we know that early experiences of unemployment are associated with, with long-term scarring effects, both economic and social and psychological for young people. But you're right, you're right, Clara, in that point you made about, about vocational systems. And when we do look at countries which have very strong vocational systems, we see uh, low levels of concentration in terms of what young people say they're going to do. You know, it's a, it's a broader range of occupational expectations, which we find. But also we find that jobs like um, childcare workers, office workers, mechanics, you know, these feature in those top 10 of, uh, of jobs which young people say they're interested in. 
Let's go a little bit more into vocational careers. Can we give a maybe a clear definition of exactly what that is, especially in contrast to you know the jobs that we've been talking about just now, like lawyers, doctors, teachers? There's a broad definition sometimes of what we mean by vocational. But for our purposes, you know, we are in the education directorate and we work with schools. And what we're looking at from a secondary education perspective is programs designed to allow young people who are still in their teenage years to get ready to enter into a specific occupation. And one way to have some sense of boundary of what we're talking about is to use the international standardised classifications of occupations, ISCO. And it's a way which, you know, around the world, you know, people use this this categorisation to understand understand jobs. There's 10 categories in all. Category 7 covers the skilled traits. And that's something where we see in many countries employers saying they really struggle to find young people who can enter good jobs directly from secondary school and this might be a motor vehicle mechanics plumbers tailors dressmakers jewelry makers you know lots of professions which are those might be seen as more practical practical that's a good word you know so there's governments like the uk and australia among others who want to nudge young people more towards these practical vocational careers is that what you're seeing well, we certainly see um, a lot of interest now in vocational education. It seems to stem from the great financial crisis. If we go back to 2007, 2008, in many countries around the world, we saw a, a big spike in youth unemployment. And we saw that, in, but in a few countries, that didn't happen. And the countries where it didn't happen, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, they have very good vocational education systems. And so there's been a, a lot of interest, a lot of reforms going on over the last 10 years to try and enhance vocational education. And, you know, the UK is a very good example of, of a country which has put a lot of energy into making vocational education more attractive, you know, convert to young people, but also making sure that it, it works more as an entry to skilled employment. And it actually addresses the employment needs of employers. So why is vocational education training so attractive in countries like Germany and Austria and that's a really good question. And I think what's at the heart of it is that, well, I think there's a couple of things. But the first thing is that a young person can have pretty strong confidence that it's, it's a gateway to skilled employment. Now, the way that apprenticeship programs, and this is the way that vocational education is delivered, apprenticeship programs are designed very closely with employers. Their employers are involved in the, in the initial development. And if an employer doesn't feel that it's in their interest to participate in an apprenticeship scheme, there isn't really an incentive for them to do so. And so what they're signaling through their engagement is that there is skilled employment at the end. By the time the training program has finished, you know, a young person has a good chance of having a good job. And we can see that employers as well are involved in the confirmation of, of qualifications, which gives other employers real confidence in those qualifications. And so the way that the apprenticeship system is set up in these German-speaking countries really underpins its value to young people and their confidence that there will be skilled employment at the end. We actually had, when I worked in the VET team, we had an intern you know, who started from Switzerland who started out his career as a lift engineer. And then had gone back into sort of like general education and you know, completed a master's and was working in education policy. And I thought it was a really nice example of the way that in Switzerland, that's not a crazy thing to do at all. But you can imagine in most countries, if you start out as a lift engineer, as you leave school. As an elevator engineer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, good. Yeah. So meaning you can go down a pathway, but you can also make some changes and, and go back into the... Yeah, I think it's not a dead end. That's the thing. Yeah. So it's quite heavy academic content, which means that by the time you finish, we actually do have options. 
and your options might include sort of like going back to, to tertiary education. Whereas, you know, a lot of apprenticeship systems have, have generally been focused on relatively low qualifications and they've been dead ends. And that's why they've been unattractive to lots of young people because maybe at 16, you can say, okay, make a decision. Are you going to sort of like just be a, mecha- in a car mechanic? Or do you want to carry on and give give yourself a few more options? And um, and something like Germany, you know, you can say I'll become a car mechanic, and if it doesn't work out, then I'll go back into education. These are countries where there is a very long tradition of young people leaving school ed- early, entering an apprenticeship, and so it's it's a familiar part of the culture. And what we find is that studies show that you know young people whose parents undertook apprenticeships are involved in skilled trades or skilled employment, and they find it easier themselves, you know, to find apprenticeships because there are this cultural background, these social networks, which make it more, both more desirable and more achievable. I think that cultural um, dimension is very interesting. Like the PISA 2018 also showed that 15-year-old girls and students from immigrant communities were particularly uninterested in vocational educational training. Well, that's right. You know, one thing we can do with our PISA data is we can look at the jobs which young people expect to do by the age of 30. And then we can use this classification, you know, the ISCO categorization. We can look at category seven jobs, you know, which are um, a good proxy for, for interest in skilled employment. And across the OECD countries, we see a huge variation. In Mexico, Israel and Turkey, fewer than 2% of all young people say that they're interested in these sorts of professions. But it's, it's up to 17% in the Czech Republic. And we can see that you know Central European countries in particular have um, a strong interest from young people, but that doesn't always sort of like translate you know to every young person. And you know, systematically, we see lower interest from girls and lower interest from young people from migrant backgrounds. And with girls, it's in some in some countries it's difficult for us to find anybody, any girl who is interested in you know these sorts of skilled trades. And that might well be for reasons which relate to the quality of the provision, whether they can have genuine confidence that there is a job at the end of it and it's going to be a skilled job and it's not going to be kind of like a hostile workplace. You know, really effective programs give young people a real opportunity to continue their learning and to progress. And we find that where that doesn't exist, young people might find that it's not in their interest. And if you think about the position of girls in particular, you know, they may well not be in the culture or um, the historical experience for girls to engage in vocational pathways. What can schools and systems do? Well, the first way is to, you know, address seriously some of these barriers that the best person to talk to a girl about a vocational pathway and skilled employment it's a woman who actually works in those fields, who's been through that process, who can understand and actually answer some questions about, you know, whether construction sites are hostile or whether it's possible to, to kind of raise a family and work in, in this profession or that profession. And it's similar with young people from migrant backgrounds. You know, whenever I think about this, I always think about the beginning of Anna Karenia, the Tolstoy novel, which starts with, oh, happy families are the same, but unhappy families are unhappy in different ways. And we can see this in, in terms of education, higher education, university education, Academic education systems tend to be very, very similar, but vocational systems vary enormously between countries. And if you're from a migrant background and you're going into a new country, it can be very difficult to understand how a vocational system works and how to enter it and whether it's worth entering it or not. And, you know, we see countries like Switzerland and Germany putting quite a lot of efforts into making it easier for people from from migrant backgrounds to understand, you know, what's really at stake and, and to support them through the journey into vocational education. With the economy changing so much now and becoming much more green and sustainable, as well as digital, maybe that opens up new kinds of careers that fall more into the vocational sphere? Yeah, I mean, 
green jobs is really is a really good example because it's an area where there's lots of change happening in the labor market and so it's difficult for young people to really understand what they need to do to position themselves well to take advantage of these new jobs but where there is an employer say giving young person confidence that there is a there will be a job at the end of this because they're heavily involved in their training programs then it's a signal and it's an effect it's quite an effective signal to young people that this is something which is a good use of their time you know it's, it's, it might be a relatively low risk way also going through leaving education and getting into the labor market in, a, in an area where there's, there's going to be prospects over the, over the long term is apprenticeship the only form of vocational educational training Apprenticeships now are, are available in a very wide range of occupations. In the UK, for example, you can do an apprenticeship in becoming a policy advisor in government. In California, you can do an apprenticeship in, in becoming a lawyer. And that's what Kim Kardashian was doing. That's incredible. I had no idea. She did an apprenticeship? Yeah, I don't think she completed it, but I think she started it. Ah. I don't know. I noticed, I noticed it more from the, the apprenticeship policy perspective. <laughs> but, um, I know a lot of people who will know whether she's completed it or not. I just have to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> so are there other ways vocational educational training can be organized? Two main ways. One is fully work-based and the other one is, is school-based. And in countries, can it vary? At one end of the ex- extreme, you have um, you know school-based programs where the, the student just stays in the classroom the whole time and doesn't see a workplace at all. And from our perspective, from the work that we've done at OECD, you know we would be skeptical that that can give a young person as as good a preparation as programs which engage either a significant amount of work-based learning. And, you know, our, there are recommendation is a minimum of three months within a, within a school-based program uh, where a young person might go into a workplace and um, practice the skills they've been developing in workrooms or in the classroom, all the way through to a spectrum where in an apprenticeship, a young person might expect to spend 80% of their time in the workplace under the training of a supervisor, but then spend a day a week, sometimes two days a week, back in school. In some countries, doing quite a range of subjects, as well as the more theoretical parts linked to their, their vocational program. But what happens if the training that the person is getting uh, on the work site is too specific to that company so that if they decide not to work for that company or what they've learned is not really applicable? Couldn't that be a problem? Well, for vocational education systems to work well, they need to be attracted to three groups of stakeholders. The first is the young person. And so for a young person, they don't want something which is going to be overly narrow, which is going to just limit them to a small number of opportunities or perhaps opportunities with just one employer. And secondly, for society as a whole, public money goes into vocational education and training because it's not to just subsidize an employer, but to provide a young person with the skills which will allow them to sustain themselves, you know, to be economically independent, you know, through their adult lives. So there may be employers who've got, you know, vested interests in having programs which are very narrow. But how this is this is countered in somewhere like Germany is the Chambers of Commerce, which are responsible for the development of programs. And so, you know, they make sure that a young person is is prepared broadly to be able to succeed in, in a profession across a range of different different enterprises. When they go into the workplace, where well, they will work on in a temporary way and temporary uh, machinery and, and systems. And that is a good thing because that brings an authenticity to their experience. But it's really important and this is where the one or two days a week which happens back in the classroom is important. It's really important that you know, they, they have this theoretical underpinning for what they're, for they're doing. And so they can take their example of what they're doing in the workplace and make sense of that for, for broader uses across their working lives. 
So that's quite a complex design, which would involve education ministry, chamber of commerce, employers, perhaps trade unions having to work together to create vocational educational training programs that are good for all the parties involved. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, social partnership is a very effective model of making that happen. And it's right, trade unions play a key role because you know they all speak for the interests of the um, the workforce generally, and um, for you know for, for, the, for apprentices, people entering the workforce. Uh, but if you have these different parties involved, you get this balance, and you can look at the costs and benefits to uh, a young person. And, and when you undertake an apprenticeship in nearly all countries, you're doing so at a pretty low wage, so you're you're making a sacrifice early on in return for the hope of something meaningful later on. But where you have a, a balance between you know the costs and benefits for the apprentice and for the employer and we have mechanisms for so like arguing that out you know we end up with this goldilocks in a scenario where the apprenticeships are just right and they work well for the young person they work well for the employer and they work well for society and that's that's the golden circle we want to be able to achieve ah the golden circle let's all try to be there so thank you very much anthony for talking to us about career readiness and vocational educational training i'm clara young to find out more about the oecd's work on education and skills find us on twitter our handle is at oecd edu skills <laughs>